Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that is brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 9, the book of Hosea, chapter 5. Well, beside the problem of disfavor or even anger that comes from Yehovah on account of idolatry, there is also the reality that Idolatry is indelibly tied to the sin of immorality. Now we have been reading, we're going to continue to read in Hosea, of this immoral condition of Israel. Something which they were not self-aware, they even denied it. Verse 6 of chapter 4 pinned the reason for Israel's inability to recognize their immoral and therefore defiled condition on the lack of knowledge of God's Torah. Not my words, not my thought. That is literally what is written. That is what God defines as right and wrong, good and evil, moral, moral and immoral was no longer even known to them because they rejected the source of that knowledge. Now, I doubt that there's any Christian or Jewish scholar or rabbi that would quibble too much with that last statement. So, since that's the case, how has a blindness towards idolatry and immorality enveloped our Judeo-Christian faith institutions and darkened our minds, if not our souls. Why has the search for truth become a quest for a peaceable consensus within our culture instead? Equally important, what has been the result of this pervasive theological perspective? I would offer that it is chaos and confusion among God-worshippers. Charles Malik, who is a Lebanese theologian, philosopher, and, and diplomat, once said this, There is truth and there is falsehood. There is good and there is evil. There is happiness and there is misery. There is that which ennobles and that which demeans. There is that which puts you in harmony with yourself, with others, with the universe, and with God. And there is that which alienates you from yourself, from the world, and from God. The greatest error in modern times is the confusion between these orders. Now notice that Malik speaks only in absolutes. This only or that only. Nothing in the middle. Our modern Western democratic societies have politically and socially evolved to despise absolutes. There's a belief that there is no absolute right or wrong. There is no absolute morality. Our intellect doesn't allow for it. In fact, using the word evil to describe something is frowned upon because it is now believed to represent a narrow-minded, ignorant judgment on our part, 
which is the opposite of universal tolerance of all religious and secular belief systems. This worldview is the same that Ephraim Israel had adopted slowly over time and that Judah was in danger of moving towards. It led to moral confusion for them and it has ended in confusion for us to the point that the most foundational and self-evident identity of our biological physical being, gender, is also no longer considered to be an absolute. Tragically, millions of people now live in this miserable muddle of alienation from others and from the God who made them, so many not even totally aware of their condition. Is this an overly dramatic view I just presented to you? Perhaps, but it might also be an understatement of the seriousness of our modern reality, something that Ephraim Israel was about to have taught to them in the most severe way. Let's reread Hosea chapter 5. Hosea chapter 5. Open your Bibles to Hosea chapter 5. I'm going to reread it all. Hosea chapter 5. Hear this, priest. Pay attention, house of Israel. Listen, house of the king. For judgment is coming to you. You have become a snare for Mitzpah, a net spread over Tabor. The rebels have deepened their slaughter, and I am rejected by all of them. I know, Ephraim, Israel's not hidden from me. For now, Ephraim, you're a whore. Israel's defiled. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoring is in them, and they don't know Adonai. Israel's arrogance will testify in his face. Israel and Ephraim will stumble in their crimes. Judah, too, will stumble with them. With their flocks and herds, they will go in search of Adonai, but they won't find him. He is withdrawn from them. They have betrayed Adonai by fathering foreign children. Now, within the month, the invaders will devour their lands. Blow the shofar in Gibeah, a trumpet at Ramah. Sound an alarm at Beit Aven. Behind you, Benjamin, Ephraim will be laid waste when the day for punishment comes. I am announcing to the tribes of Israel what will surely happen. The leaders of Judah are like men who move boundary stones. I will pour my fury out upon them like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed by the judgment, because he deliberately sought out futility. Therefore, I am like a moth to Ephraim, like rottenness to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, Ephraim went to Asher, and he sent envoys to a warring king. But he can't heal you or cure your wound. For to Ephraim I'll be like a lion and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I'll tear them up and go away. I'll carry them off and no one will rescue. I will go and return to my place till they admit their guilt and search for me, seeking me eagerly in their distress. We briefly discussed last time 
that this chapter begins with a summons to judgment by Yehovah, and three categories of people are being summoned. Israel's priests, Israel's residents, and Israel's royal house. In other words, everyone that can be identified as belonging to the northern kingdom of Ephraim Israel. Now, after the summons comes a prophecy about their exile and their oppression, and then the evidence against Ephraim, and then finally the judgment. So, this narrative is very much in the style of a judicial trial, as it was commonly conducted in the Middle East of the 8th century BC. Now, since that the mention of Mitzpah and Tabor in verse 1 is probably meant only as being representative of cities and places throughout Israel, then the general sense of verse 1 is this, a true knowledge of Jehovah their God has been obscured and even outlawed throughout Israel. And this has been accomplished intentionally, intentionally by the political and the religious authorities which had worked together to fashion this new hybridized religion. From God's viewpoint, the entire purpose of the religious establishment and the government of Israel was to guide. It was to educate and protect the people. It was to be based on the Torah. Instead, they caused the people to stumble by committing idolatry that led to blatant immorality, and they did it so they could profit from it. Verse 2 adds the place name of Shittim which can only refer to the final place that Israel encamped on the west side of the Jordan River before they crossed into the Promised Land. Now, because this verse is very poorly preserved, translation has been difficult and involved a lot of guesswork. I suggested one possible reconstruction of it last time because it really is so hazy that I'm afraid we probably ought not to spend too much time on it, because in the end there's no consensus of opinion, it's just mostly speculation. Well, verse verse 3 broaches something that we're going to have to deal with that isn't particularly a pleasant thought. It is that while Israel will think that what's going to happen to them is all about the ambitions of an aggressive enemy, Jehovah is going to make it abundantly clear that it is He that's causing the approaching disaster. Yes, God is going to harm His own people. This is a thought that seems utterly foreign to Christians. Often it is claimed that this harm only applies to Israel, ancient and modern, or divine anger and harm is explained away by the claiming that Jesus changed all of that. Well, I assure you, he has not. Something we must be careful not to abandon in our study of these, this particular prophetic book is that the person or manifestation of God that is still speaking to Hosea is the Word. And yet, since we see at the end of verse 4 that Jehovah's name is used as the one who is the accuser and the judge, 
then it continues to make the word as but the vehicle or the agent of Jehovah's, the Father's, message to Hosea, not the author of it. Well, beginning with the introduction to Hosea, I've regularly inserted the word Ephraim when I'm speaking of Israel for the sake of clarity that what this refers to is only the ten northern tribes of Israel and not to Judah. Now, however, we see the narrative shift. Such the term Ephraim is pushed to the front, the term Israel not as much for the time being. Some scholars believe that God is now referring just to the tribe of Ephraim as opposed to speaking of the entire northern kingdom. I, just, I, I can't see that. I don't see it. The Bible is full of Hebrew literary couplets, two terms that are virtually synonymous in their meaning, even if their more technical sense is the two terms might mean something slightly different from one another. It is merely a style of speaking that makes for better transmission of a story orally, which is how it was done nearly exclusively for hundreds and hundreds of years before it was ever written down. For instance, we'll see the terms Jacob and Israel often used as a couplet, even though technically Jacob is the name of one of Israel's patriarchs and Israel became the name of the nation of the twelve tribes. So Jacob and Israel are nearly synonymous in meaning this name of the same person and yet both of those terms can be used to refer to the name of the nation he produced. This is what is happening in Hosea with the terms Ephraim and Israel. Here they're just meant as synonyms. Well, God says that I myself know Ephraim. In other words, Jehovah is not getting his information about the goings on in Israel secondhand. Jehovah directly sees, he directly knows. So Israel cannot claim that their case is being falsely reported to him. It also means that God can't be fooled by the denial of Israel that they were whoring with Baal. And as a result, a people who were meant and equipped to strive towards purity of worship, well, they become defiled. Their idolatry has led to their corporate immorality. Well, verse 4 states, that their deeds, that is, in other words, their choices, simply did not allow them to return to their God. Okay, the Hebrew word that is properly translated as, as deeds is ma'alalim. It implicitly means wicked deeds. Now, some scholars see this verse as meaning that Israel refuses to give up their, their evil doing while others see it as meaning that their evil deeds were so loathsome that this barred them from returning to God. It really doesn't matter which way we look at it because the result's the same. It is their fault, their fault, that they are no longer near to Jehovah. They've done it to themselves. And how has this condition come to be? They have allowed into themselves a spirit of harlotry. And since harlotry is a metaphor for idolatry, 
then this is saying that Ephraim as a people group have adopted a spirit of idolatry. As Douglas Stewart aptly puts it, the people have oriented themselves towards idolatry rather than orienting themselves towards the truth and towards God. Now, I'm so taken by verses of chastisement such as these in Hosea, and my prayer is that you are as well. I mean, they really strike deep into my mind and are terribly upsetting. They also cause me a lot of introspection, and no doubt that's why these words are here. I feel God's unpleased gaze on the back of my neck. His disgust of our society, the world community in general, his anger that those who choose to call him our God, who claim to embrace his Son as our Savior, reject the one source of knowledge that he has given to us as our moral compass, the Torah. If we can in any way call ourselves aware and truth-seekers, then when we look around us, around our community, our, our nation, our church, our synagogue, what is the spirit that any of these are oriented towards? Is it truly towards God? The true God of Israel is revealed to us in the Scriptures? Or is it towards the God of our own making that seeks compromise and consensus? See, the thing is, this verse is not speaking of individuals, but rather of a group. There's no doubt that there were others than Hosea that refused to succumb to the defiling way of life of his society or to adopt pagan worship practices, just, just the same way it is today. Yet those who worked hard to remain faithful apparently were still, still firmly affixed to the Israelite society of the Northern Kingdom and so were in a way acquiescing to an orientation of idolatry and then the accompanying immorality. I mean, I, I doubt it was easy to escape. Where would one have gone? I mean, I suppose one could have uprooted family and moved to Judah, but simply figuring out how to survive the process would have been daunting. And as we learn in a couple of verses, Judah was drawing closer to the end of God's patience with them. So, in the end, we're all pretty much stuck where we are as the faithful few of Israel. And while we can and should prepare for what is prophesied, what is bound to come from this situation, it almost certainly does not involve our escape. Now, although the complete Jewish Bible translates verse 5 dynamically and not literally, I think it gets across the sense of the words better than almost any other Bible version. Most Bibles will speak of Israel's pride, but what it is referring to is their arrogance. However, the next words, testify in his face, Ephraim's face, that's a little tricky. 
Okay. When we look closely, this translation is literally word for word correct. But the sum of the words amounts to more of an expression. What this means is that Ephraim's arrogance is proof enough of their guilt. Their arrogance alone reveals that God's indictment of idolatry against them is right. So exactly what is it that Ephraim Israel is arrogant about? It's all their religious activities. All that stuff they thought was so very wonderful and right. Yet God calls all their religious activities crimes. The Hebrew word that the complete Jewish Bible translates as crimes, and, and most others translate as uh, inequities, is avon. This is another of those Hebrew words that can be translated quite well, literally. But the sense of it requires some nuance. Avon indeed means iniquity, but it also means guilt. However, when it is used as it is here and by other prophets such as Amos, it inherently includes the idea of punishment for that iniquity and guilt rather than simply guilt as a fact. So the fall that Israel will experience will be as a punishment that's inherently associated with the guilt. This is a critical piece of information because it reinforces that the punishment, which will be their exile and oppression at the hand of Assyria, will all be orchestrated by God. And He is going to cause this to happen as a means to punish Israel for their arrogance of claiming to worship Him by means of their bastardized religious practices. The final words of verse 5 then introduce the idea that Judah too is going to fall right along with Ephraim, although not necessarily for the same reasons. And yet, as was clearly said earlier in Hosea, Judah's fall will come sometime after Israel's. It turned out to have been about 130 years later. Now there's much tied and bundled together in verse 6. And it's intended to both jog some memories, but also to make the story quite memorable and impactful when it is told to, then to generation to generation. The mention of bringing flocks and herds to seek Jehovah, this harkens back to the time of Egypt and of their exodus. Exodus 10 verses 8 and 9. So Moses and Aaron were brought to Pharaoh again, and he said to them, Go, worship Adonai your God, but who exactly is going? And Moses answered, We will go with our young and our old, our sons and our daughters. We will go with our flocks and our herds, for we must celebrate a feast to Adonai. The Pharaoh, of course, fought against this. He threw all kinds of conditions out to try to prevent Israel from going to worship Jehovah and taking their flocks and herds with them. Now, in the case of their actual exodus, the flocks and the herds were to serve as sources of food for their journey. 
But here in Hosea, you see, this is referring to taking overwhelming amounts of animals to be sacrificed. Sacrificed in hopes that the volume of them would so impress Jehovah that he would forgive them. And then this would avert disaster. But it also carries an underlying impression of Israel having brought their flocks and herds to sacrifice to the religious cult that they had created that added Baal and pagan festivals to the mix. God's judgment had already happened, even if the punishment wasn't going to start for a few more years. There is an interesting story that occurs around 250 or so years prior to the time of Hosea. I think it's a good illustration, and it highlights this part of God's nature that we just hate to wrestle with. But it's there, and we need to face it. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 18 through 26, we read this. Now, Adonai sent you on a mission and told you, go and completely destroy Amalek, those sinners. Keep making war on them until they have been exterminated. So why did you seize the spoil instead of paying attention to what Adonai said? From Adonai's viewpoint, you've done an evil thing. And Saul said to Samuel, well, I did too pay attention to what Adonai said, and I carried out the mission on which Adonai sent me. I brought back Agog, the king of Amalek, and I completely destroyed Amalek. But the people took some of the spoil, the best of the sheep and cattle set aside for destruction to sacrifice to Adonai your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, does Adonai take as much pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying what Adonai says? Surely obeying is better than sacrifice and heeding orders than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of sorcery, stubbornness like the crime of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of Adonai, he too has rejected you as king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the order of Adonai in your words too because I was afraid of the people. And I listened to what they said. Now please, pardon my sin, and come back with me, so that I can worship Adonai. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not go back with you, because you have rejected the word of Adonai, and so Adonai has rejected you as king over Israel. See, here is a situation that operates on the same God principle that Hosea 5.6 is explaining. If we had read the preceding verses of 1 Samuel 15, we know that what Saul did was to violate the law of the ban. This is a commandment we find in the law of Moses. That is, there are things that belong to God alone, and which may not be acquired by war and used for the benefit of God's people. Saul attacked Amalek, he won. But he kept the best spoils of war for himself. He was called out for it. He was told that the punishment would be severe. And in order to avoid the consequences, Saul wanted to impress God 
by now doing what he should have done in the first place. No dice, says Samuel. No dice. In the book of Hosea, once again, Israel recognizes their mistake, and they will try to avoid the consequences by running back to Jehovah. They'll begin by offering lavish amounts of animals from the flocks and the herds for sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. God says he won't accept them. Saul confessed and repented. But Samuel, as God's prophet, told him that Saul is still being removed from his position as king because God has now set him on the shelf. This same sort of thing is going to happen to Israel. So this is what we're to understand. Sacrifices weren't ever meant to placate, appease, or persuade Jehovah. In many cases, the sacrifices were to properly worship him in obedience. Often it was to give him things that were already his. That's the concept behind first fruits sacrifices, for instance. And since we can't tie a cow to a stake and point to a sheaf of barley and tell God to come and get them, then the only way to give anything to God is to put it on the altar and burn it up with the smoke and the ash symbolically going up to heaven. The entire idea of placating or persuading or making a deal with a god comes from the pagan god systems because that's what everyone was hoping to do. Sacrificial animals were also literally thought by the pagans as the very necessary food for their gods so they didn't become hungry. In Jehovah's system, as regards sin, in one sense, a sacrifice is kind of a symbol of a worshiper's defeat. It means sin has won out. Now some innocent animal is going to have to pay the price with its own life as a substitute for the guilty, sinning, sinning human. As was said in 1 Samuel 15, God would always rather His people simply obeyed Him so that His innocent creatures didn't have to be killed and burned up on an altar. Well, verse 7 says, that another way that Israel has betrayed him is by fathering foreign children. There was much intermarriage that occurred between Israel and their many Gentile treaty partners. The priesthood worked with the kings of Israel to amend and to change the religious requirements and doctrines that were laid upon the people so it would work to the economic and nationalistic agenda and policies of the monarchy. It would be easy for us to just shake our heads and point fingers of shame towards those terrible Israelites for doing such a thing. But in reality, it all happened quite slowly over many decades of time. Each seemingly minor change built upon the 
previous one, and each time the change didn't seem like much to be alarmed about. But after a few decades, if one had cared to look to the past, what was currently being practiced looked nothing like it used to be. However, that's not generally what people do, is it? Hey, it's all working pretty well for me. Why would I mess with success? It's kind of our attitude. There were so many problems that were introduced when the Israelites took on Gentile spouses. First of all, God forbade it. So it was a sin. Second, the law of Moses contains quite a few instructions of inheritance and, and property rights, and being married to a Gentile brought with it enormous complexities that usually resulted in heartache. For instance, if a child is born to an Israelite and a Syrian, was the child Israelite or Syrian? Was he Hebrew or Gentile? At this point in history, the ethnic identity of the father determined the ethnic identity of the children, but that would actually change over time. And now with this mixed marriage came the issue of religious practices. Neither family wanted their newly married family member to adopt a different religion with a different god and all the obligations that came with it, so the family tensions in such a case were significant. The solution was to mix little of each religion together and create a religious stew that would appease both sides, which is what Israel's government had already mandated and the priesthood had done. Jesus talked about this situation using the term unequally yoked. I have spoken and corresponded with many heartbroken spouses that were Christians, having knowingly married a non-believer, thinking that in time he or she would eventually come around. Years have passed. No interest is being expressed. And the morality and the ethics practiced by the non-believing spouse is so much different than for the believer that has become intolerable. Now what do you do? Now I've attempted today to draw your attention back to a couple of principles and realities that Hosea is built around. So, here's yet another one to keep at the forefront of your mind as we move along. <clears throat> the relationship that Israel had with Jehovah was based on one thing only. One thing, the covenants God had made with Abraham and with Moses. Outside of that, Israel had no basis for relationship with God. This was a binding covenant, binding covenant relationship, even though Israel, as God said, had forgotten it. They had become unfaithful to it, like the unfaithful wife, Gomer, had become to the faithful Hosea. All that we are reading about was Israel's violation of the covenants and how God was reacting to it. 
However, it's not as though God was bringing in some random consequences that were outside of the covenant terms. Rather, especially as concerns the covenant of Moses, the terms for each party of the covenant were laid out at Mount Sinai with penalties associated for breaking those terms included. What we see happening here in Hosea is a trial to prove that Israel actually had broken the terms of the covenant and then to determine the consequences for breaking those terms. So there's no serendipitous or make it up as you go punishment happening here. God was merely staying true to the terms of the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants. The covenant penalty for Israel doing what they did was to be thrown out of the land in exactly the same way that the penalty for Adam and Eve doing what they did was to be thrown out of the garden. Never miss that connection, by the way. Verse 8 begins with what is sometimes called the watchman verses, because that's what's being depicted in verses 8 through 11. What the hearer is being asked to do, what you're being asked to do, is to imagine a watchman standing dutifully at his station upon the tallest hill around, looking in the direction that an attack might come from. And he spots an advancing army. Now he must do his job and warn his people. So he sounds the alarm by blowing a, a ram's horn and a trumpet. Now this is another of those couplet situations where a shofar, a ram's horn, and a trumpet mean essentially the same thing because here they do the same thing. Technically, they're certainly not the same things. And while it can't, it, it can't be said that a trumpet was never used to warn or to assemble an army for battle, a trumpet was usually an instrument assigned to the Levites and used for religious ritual. A shofar, that was the equivalent of the old army bugle that, depending on the series or pitch of the blast, would tell the warriors what they were to do. Well, it seems pretty clear that this must be talking about the time when the Syrians, again, not Assyrians, Syrians, when the Syrians allied with Ephraim Israel to attack Judah. Again, don't confuse Syria and Assyria. I'm not mispronouncing it. It's two different places. So as hard as it is to imagine, it actually happened that ten of the Israelite tribes went to their Gentile neighbor to the north, Syria, and struck a deal with them, so that together they would attack the other two tribes of Israel that lived in Judah. Such was the state of confusion and depravity that Israel had sunk. What we read here is historically accurate. The event is recorded in another place in the Bible. So, with the Hosea prophecy as our backdrop, here is the story. We read about it in 2 Kings 
chapter 16. Here's verses 5 through 9. Then Retzin, king of Aram, that's Syria, and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, came up to fight against Jerusalem, in other words, Judah. They put Ahaz under siege, but they could not overcome him. It was at that time that Retzin, king of Syria, recovered a lot for Aram and drove the Judeans from Elot, whereupon people from Edom came to Elot to live, as they do to this day. Then Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglat-Pileser, king of Asher, of Syria, with this message, I am your servant and your son. Come up, save me from the king of Aram and the king of Israel, who are attacking me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold that was in the house of Adonai and in the treasuries of the royal palace and sent it as a present to the king of Asher. And the king of Asher heeded him. The king of Asher attacked Damasek, that's the capital of Syria, and captured it. Then he carried its people captive to Ker and, call, and killed Retzin. Okay. Aram, another name for Syria, Damascus, capital of Syria. Jerusalem and Judah are another one of those biblical couplets. They are meant as synonymous on many occasions, even though technically one's a city, the other's a kingdom. So Pekah was the king of Israel at this time. Ahaz was the king of Judah. And since Pekah reigned from 752 to 732 B.C. in Israel, and Ahaz reigned from 735 to 716 B.C., there's really only a three to four year window in which what we just read could have happened. It was sometime between 735 and 732 B.C. Israel and Judah had been regularly at each other's throats. They had been rival kingdoms for 200 years, even though they were all brother Israelites. King Pekah makes an alliance with Retzin, king of Syria, to attack Judah. They mainly attacked the territory of Benjamin, the most of which lay within the kingdom of Judah, but part of which lay within the kingdom of Israel. There is a mountain road that runs from the area of Jerusalem to the north and the order of the cities given in this account in Hosea follows that route. Well, the first city they encounter is Gibeah. It's only about three miles from Jerusalem. Then a couple more miles up the road is Ramah. A little further yet is Bethel. Now here, if you'll notice in your Bibles, we don't actually read the word Bethel. Instead, we read Beth Aven. I told you in an earlier lesson that this is a Hebrew literary device, whereby a name with a certain meaning overlays the real name in order to make a point, usually a sarcastic point. So Bethel means the house of God, but Beit Aven means the house of trouble. Thus, in this instance, Beit Aven is a derogatory name that God uses for Bethel. In the end, it's the same place. In verse 9, after telling of the attack upon Judah by Ephraim, we learn about what comes next. And while some reconstruction has to be pieced together to get the historical timeline correct, here's what we have. While still under attack, Judah was encouraged 
not to do as Israel did in seeking a Gentile nation for an ally. Instead, Judah was asked to have faith in Jehovah to deliver them from Syria and from Ephraim's hand. However, Judah didn't do that. Instead, their king went to Assyria, the big dog in the region. And after paying them enormous amounts of treasure and gold, Assyria agreed to come to Judah's rescue. Now we're probably at right about the time Israel is going to change kings yet again. Pekah is about to be overthrown by Hosea, not the prophet Hosea, in 732 or 733 BC. So what does all this mean for Ephraim? Well, verse 9 says that the results of all these illicit, uh, illicit alliances that both Judah and Israel had made with Gentile nations is that even though Ephraim and Syria are allies, there's still no match for Assyria. The northern kingdom is going to be ravaged by Assyria's army, calling Assyria's ultimate victory when they take the capital of Israel, which is Samaria, the day of punishment. That is, this is the official time when the northern kingdom of Israel ceases to exist, and the ten tribes of Israel become scattered to the winds. Now, Jehovah assures both Israel and Judah that these events are going to happen, and there is nothing they can do about it. Which, once again, brings us right back to preparedness. It's already been made clear. No amount of repentance, sacrificing, pleading is going to change what is going to happen to Israel and later on to Judah. God will not relent because some line in the sand has been crossed. So, what did Israel and Judah do? They warred with each other. And knowing in advance that the local Gentile nations were going to be God's tool to wreck Israel and Judah, what did they do? Well, they went out and made allies with these same Gentile nations. So how did all that work out? See, there's only one reason that Israel and Judah did this instead of taking other measures such as preparing for the inevitable. They did not believe God. They did not have the faith to heed the advance warning that could have greatly saved much suffering and death. Were Israel and Judah still going to be handed over to the enemy Gentile nations no matter how much they might have prepared? Hmm, yes. But their circumstances could have been far better, involving far fewer deaths. Believing God and taking action could have averted much hunger and disease. Think again to the Egyptian connection. God showed Joseph and Pharaoh that Egypt was going to suffer a series of very bad harvests and nothing was going to stop it. But he also said that if you will believe him, just believe him, if you will take action and prepare, 
your people and your livestock will survive it. And they can even be a blessing to others. The Pharaoh believed God. He went into preparation mode with Joseph at the helm, and Egypt came out of a seven-year drought stronger than when it all began. Prepare, 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 children of God. Prepare. We have been told what's coming. Nothing's going to stop it. When we're prepared, even the unexpected can be better weathered. How much more after we've been warned can we prepare if only we'll trust and do it instead of fingers crossed, putting it off just a little longer? In verse 10, attention is turned to Judah, and it compares the leadership of Judah to people who move boundary markers. Deuteronomy chapter 27 has a long list of things in which God issues a curse upon the person or the people who violate certain laws. And among the list, we find this one, Deuteronomy 27:17, A curse on anyone who moves his neighbor's boundary marker. All the people are to say, Amen. Now, remembering that this applied to the Israelites, then it is necessary to factor in that God was going to allot each tribe and clan their territory within the Promised Land. The Promised Land was never to be imagined as actually being owned by the various Israelite tribes and clans, such that typical human means of deciding upon boundaries was involved. God was the owner. God was the landlord. Israel was the tenant. The land could be used. It could be occupied by an obedient Israel, to the exclusion of all others, but never would the land belong to them in the sense of actual ownership. So when Jehovah gave each tenant tribe their piece of land, it would have been an affront to God to move his assigned boundary lines. The boundaries were usually described by natural features, such as streams and rivers, certain hills and mountains, sometimes large trees or pre-established villages. Always, however, there were boundary markers that usually amounted to a stack of stones, arranged in such a way as to be easily understood by all for of its purpose. Well, when God says that Judah's leaders were like boundary marker movers, it speaks to their poor character and their rebel rebelliousness towards Him. Consequently, says God, He's going to pour out His wrath upon them like water. Now, the terms wrath and pouring out, as in pouring out of God's anger, those are regularly connected in the Bible. There's no particular nuance because the term water is being used. It's only that the pouring out of water is kind of easy to picture in one's mind. Well, now after dealing with Judah's punishment, God turns back to Ephraim Israel in verse 11, explaining that Ephraim will be oppressed, justice will be abused, and then he explains why. 
And notice how the descriptions of the offenses that cause God to react are different between Judah and Ephraim. Judah is accused of having the character of boundary marker movers. Ephraim, however, chose to align himself closely with the Gentile world, an enemy of Israel. And we need not get into the nuances of some of the terms chosen here, like oppressions and justice abused. This is the language of the curses God placed in the covenant of Moses should rebellion ever occur. The point is that Israel will suffer through very hard circumstances for an undetermined amount of time. They will be the subject, they will be subject to the justice of the Gentile nations to which they've been scattered, and they can't be certain if it'll be like their fair-minded and and, and consistent type of justice that God has given to them. Well, Ephraim's major crime simply comes down to a lack of faithfulness. I suppose that's why any of us and all of us sin, a lack of faithfulness. If we are all perfectly faithful, sin just gets taken out of the picture, doesn't it? Jehovah had promised Israel that if they practiced faithfulness towards him, he would make them secure in their land and God would deal with their enemies. Deuteronomy starting at, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28 starting at verse 1. If you listen closely to what Adonai your God says, observing and obeying all his commandments which I'm giving you today, Adonai your God will raise you high above all the nations of the earth. And all of the following blessings will be yours in abundance if you will do what Adonai your God says. A blessing on you in the city, a blessing on you in the countryside, a blessing on the fruit of your body, the fruit of your land, the fruit of your livestock, the young of your cattle and flocks, a blessing on your grain basket and kneading bowl, a blessing on you when you go out, a blessing on you when you come in. Adonai will cause your enemies attacking you to be defeated before you. They will advance on you one way and flee before you seven ways. Adonai will order a blessing to be with you in your barns and in everything you undertake. He will bless you in the land Adonai your God is giving you. Adonai will establish you as a people separated out for himself, as he has sworn to you, if you will observe the commandments of Adonai your God and follow his ways. Then all the peoples of the earth will see that Adonai's name, his presence, is with you, so that they will be afraid of you. Okay, we'll stop here and pick up in Hosea chapter 5 next time.